Welcome to Reveal, the Revenue Intelligence Podcast powered by Gong. We're your hosts, Devin Reed. And I'm Sheena Badani. Revenue intelligence is a new way of operating based on customer reality instead of opinions, making data-driven decisions based on facts instead of opinions or guesswork. And it's made up of three success pillars, people intelligence, deal intelligence, and market intelligence. You know, the things all revenue teams need and care about. Every week, we interview senior revenue professionals and share their stories and insights on how they leverage revenue intelligence to drive success and win their market. You'll hear how modern go-to-market teams win as a team, close revenue with critical deal insight, and execute their strategic initiatives, plus all the challenges that come along with it. So, Sheena, I have to ask, do you have a late-night DJ radio voice? Do I have one? <laughs> Give me. If, if, I kind of gave you a, a tease as I, I went into it, but I can. I'll try to do mine. But I want to hear yours. I would say is like, this is my best late night DJ voice. But I'm clearly trying way too hard. I, first of all, I can't look at the, the, the Zoom screen while I'm doing it because I'm just cracking up as I'm watching you. Hey, listeners. Today's episode is amazing. We have the top negotiations expert on today. <laughs> How that was, was that? pretty good. I think that was pretty good. I liked it. Now I had to focus a little too hard, though. It, it is difficult because I'm a uh, I'm a fast speaker. Um, if you're listening to this and you have no idea why we are doing this, um, that's because our guest today is Chris Voss, who is a previous FBI hostage negotiator and current author of Never Split the Difference, which is a New York Times bestseller. Now, one of his, uh, you know, one of the things he's known for is his late night FM radio voice, which helps him calm situations. Now, if you do know who Chris Voss is, you're hopefully laughing at us because uh, you know exactly what we were trying to do and maybe you've done the same. But, Gina, <laughs> I have to say, I was a little starstruck today hanging out with Chris Voss. I'm a big fan. I've, I've watched his master class. I read the book right when it came out. Uh, and I was a little nervous this morning waking up and getting ready for this interview. I won't lie. Yeah, he is like, he is a total persona. He has this aura about him. Yes. Makes him super memorable. And, and all the parts just fit together, right? From his, what, his looks to his voice um, to what he talks about and his past experiences. And to put a bow on the top, during the episode, while we were recording, his phone rang, and I don't know if this is going to make it into the episode, but you'll have to guess what song it was. It was Bad to the Bone, and it was just so fitting for Chris Voss. I loved it. The fact that it went off, it, it, it registered for a second, but then I'm talking to Chris Voss. I'm like, I have to listen to this guy. Like, I can't be half-stepping here. I got to pay attention. And then you you slacked me, and you're like, that's a fitting ringtone. And I think back about it. I'm like, of course, Chris Voss's ringtone is bad to the bone. Like, what else <laughs> yeah. What else could it be? But, yeah, totally. he, he, he is a, a, a whole persona, and he uh, he's the real deal. I'll tell you what. It was, it was really cool to talk to him. Uh, not as intimidating as one might think given his background and, you know, being a New Yorker and being in the FBI, but man, fantastic interview. Really glad we got to meet him and, uh, let, let's go ahead and get into it. Cause there's a lot to break down. Chris, we are very grateful for your time. Thanks for joining us on reveal today. Yeah, it's my pleasure. I'm happy to do so. 
I'm sure you hear it all the time. You've got some big fans here. We've read the book, watched your master class. Now I get to meet you in person. So I got to say, this is uh, it's a big day for us. Uh, <laughs> you, you need to have higher goals. <laughs> 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 well, based on the on the input that we got from Celebrate, I think it is a goal for many, many folks to meet you. Uh, for those who are listening, we had a little happy hour with Chris also, and there were many attendees who were holding up Chris's book um, during the happy hour, which was uh, pretty fun to see that too. That was fun. It was a lot of fun to be with you guys. It said, based on a time zone, though, it was too early for me to have my – I was just drinking water. Uh. (laughs) (laughs) same here well let's get into a little bit of your your personal story you have a really interesting uh career and journey but tell us your story on how you built your career around negotiations yeah you know it really came out of left field for me i was uh i was a swat guy i was uh swat in the fbi and which is crisis response. I've always liked crisis response because it, it forces decision-making. Indecision is one, uh, the bane of uh, mankind's existence, if you ask me. In crisis, you got to make a decision. So I was on SWAT, but I had a recurring knee injury, and I wanted to stay in crisis response. So we had negotiators. I thought, you know, how hard could that be? <laughs> I talk every day. What negotiation? That's, that's talking, right? It's a lot more complicated than that, but um, I, that's what, that's what got me started on it. And then when I got into it, the, the ability to influence people, what really blew me away was, uh, I was initially rejected to become a negotiator cause I was eminently unqualified. Uh, but the person that I said, okay, how do I become qualified? I got a good answer. You know, as a saying, never take advice from somebody you wouldn't trade places with. Or another version of that is, you know, don't take directions from somebody who's never been where you want to go. Well, the head of the negotiation team in New York, you know, I'm, she's going to tell me how to get on the team. I, I'm sure as heck going to listen to her, which she was shocked by. Like, I, I remember when I told her I followed her advice to volunteer on a suicide hotline, and literally she said, you're kidding. I tell people that all the time. Nobody ever does it. But I got on the hotline, and they said, you know, you're going to get people to a good place in 20 minutes or less. And I remember thinking, you got to be kidding me. You know, in the movies, they're on, pe- on the phone with people for hours. And then I thought, wow, if you can hack the process with these skills in a crisis, what can you do in normal situations? And when I did this way back when, we didn't know it was just emotional intelligence. That's all it is. and applies to everything you do. So that, you know, that really got me started on it. Then I, I literally started changing my approach to everything I was doing. Cause I'm, you know, I'm, I, I like saving time. <laughs> Let me get to the answer quicker. So that was really what got it all started. Do you think that you were born with some specific skills that make you an amazing negotiator? What percent would you say is like trained versus born with it? That's a great question. You know, there's a, uh, I don't know if you remember the movie Man on Fire with Denzel Washington. Yeah. You know, by the way, Denzel has played me in one version or another in several movies, he doesn't call, he doesn't write. I don't get invited over to the house, you know, <laughs> buy me a drink. Nah. But, uh, you know, he's, he's, he's bodyguarding this little girl and he's trying to coach her into being a best, a better swimmer. And, and she says, I'm not any good at this. And he said, there's no such thing as good. There's only trained and untrained. And I'm pretty close to agreeing with that. Um, academically, a guy named Daniel Cole wrote a book called The Talent Code. And Coyle contends that 
Like, other than hype, everything is trained. Everything. So what does that have to do with me? I think if I possessed uh, anything, it was coachability. I think I'm coachable. Um, you know, I want to learn how to do something better. You know, how to, how to keep a problem from reoccurring. You can deal with the problems you imagine might happen, or you can deal with the problems that are happening. Because if they are happening, they'll reoccur. So let's be proactive. And I think, you know, I'm coachable and I want to be proactive and great negotiation is about really just being proactive in your conversations and getting everybody into a better place sooner. That's interesting. And I have to ask, are you a trained author or writer? Because your book, Never Split the Difference, is a New York Times bestseller and it also quickly became a staple in the sales community. So is that something that you uh, you practice for or, or what motivated you to write it? All right, you're going to get a lot of platitudes out of me, all right? Uh, and this is one of them. You want to go fast, go alone. You want to go far, go as a team. I pulled together a team to write the book. And, you know, the first move, it took me a while to get there, but the book is ridiculously well-written because of my co-author, Tall Roz. Tall is a genius business book writer. I don't know that I would read um, a poem that he wrote or a limerick, you know, that once was a young maiden named Sally. I don't know how that goes. You know, I don't know Tall could do that. Tall writes the best business books on the planet. Every book he touches is a New York Times or Wall Street Journal bestseller. And the cliche was, go to the bookstore, find a book that you would like to emulate, emulate, hire that guy. And I had read Never Eat Alone, which Tall wrote with Keith Ferrazzi, one of the best business books on networking ever written. It should be on your must-read list. And I was just blown away at how well-written it was. So after going through four other writers, I finally decided to take you know my own advice. I reached out to Tall. We pulled him into the project, and he write, wrote a phenomenal book. And, and what motivated you to share your story and your background? Well, it was two things. You know, first of all, as soon as I, as soon as I left the bureau, um, if you're a consultant and you haven't written a book, people go like, you must not be any good because you haven't written a book. And they, and they also say, if you are any good, why haven't you written a book? Now, my son and I were really working together. My son is the un- uncredited co-author. And you'll hear some more because I know you guys are going to ask me about whether or not we got another book coming out. But, um, you know, we worked together until we decided that we had the system from A to Z. I, I left the FBI. Uh, I started teaching at Georgetown in the business school, and my son was involved every step of the way. And when we felt like after about doing that for about three years, and the business school students have been applying our concepts in real-world negotiations for three years, Now we got a book, and that's when we started the process, pulled a team together. Steve Ross was the agent. He was a great agent. He got us to HarperCollins. We got Tall Ross on board. You know, you pull together the team, and and you you go a long way. Well, myself and others are glad that you did. And uh, you kind of called it out, but should we expect a sequel? And maybe you're going to get a hold of Denzel, and he'll finally play you officially in the movie? Like, what what can we expect (laughs) next year? You know, I, I, you know, I keep mentioning this in interviews, and eventually I figure the phone's going to ring, and he's going to say, stop giving me a hard time. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, we're working on um, between what we've learned since the book came out and how we've evolved the, some of the ideas. We've we got a book that should, uh, should be coming out 
um, in, in May of 2021, collaboration, my son, me, another gentleman we've been working with, Jonathan Smith, because Jonathan was saying, like, look, I get most of this, but, you know, here are the holes in it for me. And here, here's what I'd recommend you guys address. So the subtitle of the book is going to be The Missing Manual for Never Split the Difference. And it's going to be a collaboration with me and two non-hostage negotiators about how regular people, you know, make this more accessible. Chris, you're going to have to put Devin and myself on that early access list for that book, please. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you can get a competitive advantage, right? Absolutely. Exactly. <laughs> I, I have to ask, how many copies of your book have been sold? I'm curious how many people you've touched through your story and through your tips. Domestically, as of last June, just the Harper Collins sales, which doesn't include the 30 overseas publishers, we were at 1.4 million. Wow. And with the, my guess is rough ballpark, the overseas public, uh, uh, is probably another two or 300,000 on top of that. So globally, probably about 1.6, 1.7 million. That's amazing. And that doesn't even count folks who benefited from your masterclass and videos and all of that. So, uh, you know, thank you for, for doing that for everybody that can benefit from what you've already learned through your career. Yeah. You know, the master class was cool. Got a big kick out of doing that. And they, they are a phenomenal partner and they did a really good job pulling that instruction together. Here's what's the coolest thing about the master class that skews heavily towards women. And by and large, that's the only um, environment venue, if you will, that skews towards women, the book sales, conferences, the vast, you know, our YouTube channel, our subscribers, heavy, heavy, heavy in the direction of men. Since women pick this up faster than men do, that's always, you know, been a, you know, an uh, annoying to me because if there are natural skills, women possess them for negotiation. Women pick this style, emotional intelligence-based negotiation up faster than men. I think for whatever reason, their high end potential is higher than men. And I'm like, awesome. The women are perfect clients, customers. And we've struggled to crack the code of getting women to buy the product. But in, in masterclass, they love it, love it, love it, love it, love it. And when we got that feedback from masterclass, not only was masterclass blown away by it, but we were kind of like, at last. Yeah. <laughs> Because this is just going to make the world a better place. All right, everyone. In every episode, we have a data breakout. A quick sidebar to look at the data. Emotional intelligence, or EQ, is directly tied to success as a negotiator. Chris mentioned that in his experience, women tend to pick up EQ-based negotiation skills faster than men. Here's some additional data to back that up. A study by the Corn Ferry Hay Group found that women outperform men in 11 of 12 emotional intelligence competencies, including coaching and mentoring, organizational awareness, and adaptability. Of course, that doesn't mean that men can't have high EQ or that women can't continue to develop their own EQ. As Chris mentioned earlier, the key is to focus on training rather than relying on natural talent. Stay tuned to the micro action at the end of the episode for tips to help you boost your own emotional intelligence. So you have an organization, Black Swan Group, where you train companies and teams on negotiation skills. What's been most surprising to you and your team as you coach 
these companies on, you know, business skills, sales skills uh, as related to negotiation? Well, and we focus more on uh, high performance individuals than we do on companies. Um, Because, you know, a lot of companies have culture problems. That was one of the points in Coyle's other book, The Culture Code. And I think he threw out the stat that only 6% of corporate executives actually know their company's core values, which is horrifying. I mean, that's horrifying. But it is. You can't change what is. And what does that mean? That most companies, their internal cultures are mediocre at best, which makes them not great clients. And let's say have defined their culture as a learning culture, which the Black Swan Group is a learning culture. We prize getting smarter. If they do, if they walk uh, the talk also. And a lot of companies will say, well, it's on you to make yourself smarter because the CEO took it upon himself to make himself smarter. And he's like, if I did this, you got to do it. And that is not the way to run the ship. You know, you got to really nurture people and really encourage them to get smarter and live it. So we focus on individuals. Now, your original question was what's surprising to us. Um, we're coaching a lot more than I ever expected us to be. I just, when I first started, I just thought we would train companies. I didn't think we would go after top performers versus going after companies. And I figured we would just train people and that'd be it. And they would run with the ball, you know, or whatever cliche you want to go with. We'd hand them the baton and they would run. And that is not the case. Um, high performers and coaching people. And if they're coachable, then high performers are coachable and they will come to us and we will get them on track really fast. And, and, and my team, I got some great coaches on my team. Derek Gaunt is our best coach and he is a superstar. Derek will help you unravel a ridiculously complicated negotiation and set you on your way in short order. And that, to me, that's been really cool. When you say top performers or high performers, Chris, are these like individuals at a company or maybe business owners coming to you on their own or are these companies saying, hey, here's my top performer, make them better, or, or maybe both? It's individuals coming to us. Mm-hmm. Um, now, the second thing, that's really interesting. I mean, I would, I would love for companies to designate their top performers, but I think most companies are so scared of leaving people out sure. that they would be like, ah, we can't designate our top performers because somebody else is going to feel left out, and then they're going to claim it's a hostile environment. You know, I mean, the, the problematic nature of, of all of that is it's a mess. I mean, it's hard. So I would love for companies to send us a top performance. I don't know how they'd pull that off, but no, it's top performers, top performing individuals, uh, uh, CEOs, presidents, some will get, um, we'll get people who are on their way to being in charge. You know, I can remember um, we had a, a, a woman come to our training one time, and she is superstar in the making and, and very fair-minded. So it, it made such an impact on her ability to contribute. She goes to the head of sales, and uh, head of sales is like, yeah, maybe. And I get on the phone with her and the head of sales, and he's just a bad leader. I mean, he's a bad leader. And... I, we didn't want the business because based on his leadership, they were not going to implement what we needed. And I don't need them blaming us for their failure to execute. 
and I sent him an email to, to, to that effect afterwards saying, you know, thanks, but no thanks. What he wanted was, uh, as a condition for us working for them, he said, I want you to introduce me to people who will give me private testimonials. And my answer was, we guard our clients' confidentiality too closely to give that up just because you want it. And he said, well, how, how do I know that, um, that you can train us? And I thought, your top salesperson came to you and told you that her success, her breakthroughs are due to what we train. So if you're stupid enough to disregard your guidance from your top salesperson, you are not going to listen to me. So I said, no, we're not doing this. And she sent me an email saying, I think I know why you fired us, but I, I'm curious, would you please tell me? And I, and I sent her back an email saying, like, you will be not just the head of sales one day for a company. You will be the head of a company. you got that much talent. And where you're working right now is not, <laughs> is not that place. And, and that's exactly why. So, you know, when you're in charge, come back and we'll teach your team. But why, why are you still working for someone who's that inadequate of a leader and I realized that I'm making the story out that it's a man. Men do not have the market cornered on incompetency. <laughs> <laughs> I, I worked with a female cop a long time ago, and we were talking about men and women in law enforcement back when that you know people were having those discussions. And she said to me, I have no illusions about the competency of all women nor the incompetency of all men. And I thought, that's a great approach. So men do not have the market cornered on incompetency. But this guy was a poor leader, and, and it you know, could have been a woman. It just happened to be a guy mm-hmm. that's not, we were not interested in doing business with his company. I mean, it kind of sounded like this was a real-life negotiation, and you had to know when to step back. Like, no deal. I'm, you were fine with no deal with this firm. <laughs> Amen. Amen. Yeah, absolutely. Um, if, you, if you're going to be a pain in the neck as a, as a, as a customer, our chances for overall failure are high. You know, somebody else is not going to be a pain in the neck and we'll succeed together. For the teams, Chris, that do make it through the gauntlet, Mr. Voss accepts them as a client and you start training these sales teams. What are the biggest mistakes that you see them making when they come to your training? Like the worst habits or the things you're like, let's start there. Cause that, is, that that's got to go. Um, if they're yes, addicts, most people are. You know, the most famous negotiating book in the world, probably still to this day, is getting to yes. You know, every every academic, there isn't anybody teaching a negotiation course in any anywhere, in any institution that I've ever heard that doesn't assign getting to yes. I mean, I think they I think they think they have to. You know, they're scared not to. But there's this there's this idea that that yes is is success, that yes is nirvana. You know, Robert Cialdini wrote a book called 50 Scientifically Proven Ways to Get to Yes. Before I knew any better, I bought that book. You know, so everybody thinks yes is success. And if you think yes is success, then no is failure. I mean, so demystifying both words is the first big issue. That If if you made me guess, that's a problem with 70% of the people out there. They're yes addicts. And, 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 and then the problem with that is this momentum selling or the yes momentum 
is a trap. And a hundred percent of the people out there have been trapped with yes. At some point in time, doesn't matter what group I stand up in front of, I'll say, all right, so what's your gut instinct? Voice on the other end of the phone says, have you got a few minutes to talk? That's a simple, respectfully intended, yes-oriented question. Like, what's the harm in that, especially if yes is so wonderful? And universally, if I ask them as a group, people go like, no! I mean, everybody's gut instinct is to immediately act as if they're being led into a trap. Everybody's gut instinct. But nobody knows that. And so that's probably the first big problem that everybody's dealing with is they don't know how bad the reaction is on the other side. They're trying to get somebody to say yes. That's interesting. And I remember that from your book, if I'm remembering correctly, was, you know, the negotiation really starts once they say no. Yeah, in so many ways. I mean, and people feel safe when they say no. I mean, you say no to something. And I, when I first started waking up to this, I, uh, you know, I look back, my son is the president of my company, co-author of the books. When he was 17, dad, can I? No. Before he finished the sentence. But every single time, having said no, I'd go like, all right, so I've, I'd go like, all right, so what was it that you wanted? Because I said no, and now I'm willing to listen. And then... So we started looking for that dynamic, and it's not just parents and children, it's human beings. Once you say no, you're willing to listen because you feel safe. You said no. I put barriers up. There's, I can't be trapped now. And so that, you know, that, that, that just, that's a game-changing idea for a lot of people. Is there also something about control? Like when you get yeah. the other person to say no, they feel that they're in control as well as safe? A thousand percent. You're, you're dead on on the money. And, you know, and so many people, they've, been tricked into stuff and they feel like I got to get control back to keep from getting tricked. So, you know, give them the illusion of control secret to gaining the upper hand and the negotiations, given the illusion of control. And so why not? If, if you're not going to exploit them and we don't teach people to exploit, you know, this is about long-term collaboration. It's about never being afraid to reveal to the other side, your motives. Cause you're, if you're afraid to reveal to them, your motives, they are going to eventually find out and you are going to pay with interest. Which leads us essentially to what the black swan is. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. You know, what, 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 what's the impact of the little things, the impact of the highly improbable, absolutely inspired by the concept of uh, Mr. Talib's book, Nassim Talib, uh, the black swan from 2007. I loved the metaphor, loved it. You know, the impact of the highly improbable pieces of information that change everything or changes in your behavior that change everything. You know, deference is a black swan. There's great power in deference. You know, it's a tiny little change in your behavior that could change the entire outcome of the negotiation. So yeah, you know, black swans are a great metaphor and a great thing to think about as you're moving through negotiations. Chris, in your book, you talk about empathy and how Great negotiators actually practice empathy yeah. in order to you know, gain that trust and uncover obstacles that come about. So talk to us a little bit more about that role of empathy and how do you actually practice it? Yeah, and practice is a real issue because while it's a word that's used all the time in, in common society, it's, you know, it's come to mean sympathy, be a synonym for sympathy. And it's not, a, it's not, it's not, it's not. 
It was never meant to be that way. And you restrict yourself if you restrict it to that definition. Empathy is just demonstrating understanding. And and you know you've done it when the other side feels understood. And there's very little practice. I mean, in today's society, we're so argumentative. You know, but media has always uh, amplified argumentativeness. You know, and like if you, it's it always has. I mean, if you, when Lincoln ran for president, you know, the, they had the media, but it was just a newspaper. But I mean, the names they called each other and the newspapers called people in the media. So th- this isn't a particularly new invention. This is being applied in a different way, but it's argumentative. Or we're taught to be argumentative. Like lawyers are taught to make arguments. I'm, I'm watching a few good men the other day. And there's a line from a Tom Cruise, you know, his character is his father was revered, making an argument, making a great argument. I mean, this continues to exacerbate uh, argumentativeness in our society. And empathy is not argumentative. Empathy is just demonstrating complete understanding for the other side's position. And it sounds so simple and it's so hard. And so you got to practice. Because you're not going, you're not wired to do that. You don't get any societal reinforcement to do that. You know, the only demonstration of empathy would be if Donald Trump, in the debate with Joe Biden, was to say, "Mr. Biden, you think I'm unfit for office?" Now that would be empathy, and people would lose their minds if he said that. But that would be empathy. He would never. He wouldn't be agreeing. And so the critical issue there is: is he? It's not agreement. It would be stating the other side's position. Mm-hmm. And I guarantee you that if if people are so leery of saying yes, that if Donald Trump said that to Biden, Biden wouldn't just say yes. He'd be like, well, you know, there's probably some good things that you've done. You know, it's crazy the way that triggers that. And and I'll give you a flip side in a personal interaction. You know, a couple of years ago, I'm sitting down with a young lady that uh, our relationship had fallen apart. And she was, you know, she she was tough. I mean, this was, you know, she was, she was every bit as assertive as I am. So no shortage of, you know, counterproductive conversations between the two of us. And she was a wonderful human being. It just, it just wasn't meant to be. And I grew from the interaction. But we sit down. I just didn't want to argue with her anymore because I didn't want to argue. And she's just a decent human being. And I look at her, and so I decided to overstate her position. And I go, I was a complete jerk. And I didn't use the word jerk. I used a much stronger multi-syllable term. (laughs) Two syllables. (laughs) And I said, I was a complete jerk the entire time we were together. And she kind of relaxed. And she said, you know, I did a lot of stuff wrong too. And I remember going like, that is not what I expected. I expected her to go, yes, you were. But, you know, she just relaxed. And she was willing to concede, if you will, that she hadn't been perfect either. But these are scary moments. 
you know, without trying this stuff out, I never would have said that if I hadn't been practicing it. You know, if I hadn't been doing it, if I hadn't been experimenting within small stakes conversations, because when you get into the big conversations, you don't low, you, you're not prepped when there's so much on the line, you know, small stakes practice for high stakes results, you know, no, no championship athlete ever tried a new technique for the first time in the, in the, in a championship game. Like why we're, why we're talking right now, the world series has started between the Dodgers and, and, and the Rays, I think. Right. Yeah. Nobody's changing their batting stance in game one of the world series no matter what their coach told them the first time they step up to the plate in the game, that is not when they're trying a different grip. Nobody does that. So you need, you need your small stakes practice before you step into the big game. And that's all I've ever gotten. Well, and speaking of being argumentative, you're known for your late night FM radio voice to calm situations and disarm who you're talking to. Chris, what is the importance of tone in negotiating? Like, it's massive. Like, it is so massive. You know, the Brits got a saying, you could be as rude as you want as long as you're polite about it. I mean, and, and, <laughs> and, and an eloquent person that has uh, been exposed to that culture, you know, they just got a polite way of saying stuff. You know, uh, and, and, and anybody can master that. So, tone, it impacts the mirror neurons. This is neuroscience. And we didn't know it was neuroscience when we started doing this in hostage negotiation. We just knew it worked. Human biology that we all share extends into the biology of our brain. And there's a limbic system in every human being's brain, and, it, and there's neurochemicals that every human being possesses and hits in our bloodstream, And every human being, regardless of gender, ethnicity, or diet, has mirror neurons. This even works on vegans. If it works on vegans, it'll work on anything. (laughs) (laughs) You know, so if you can see me, if you can hear me, I can hit your mirror neurons, and it triggers a neurochemical reaction. And when I use the late-night FM DJ voice, It hits your mirror neurons and actually physically slows your brain and slows your emotional response, which creates a calming effect. Now, you can fight it, but you can't stop me from initiating it. It's an involuntary neurochemical response. So then it starts to beg some questions. If you could do that, what else can you do? And then Sean Acker's got a Harvard TED Talk. Harvard psychologist, it says you're 31% smarter in a positive frame of mind. Really, do mirror neurons trigger a positive frame of mind? Where you walk down the street, you smile at somebody, they smile back. It's a neurochemical response. You've triggered putting them into a more positive frame of mind. I mean, the questions that begin to be begged in the tools that you begin to have, you can override your own system. They did an experiment. There's a, there, there's a hard wire between the muscles in the face and the mirror neurons. You can force a hit of dopamine into your system by forcing a smile on your face. 
I do that to myself all the time. I'll be at the end of a day and I'm running out of mental gas and I'll start forcing a smile on my face. The only problem is if somebody sees me doing it, they think I'm a serial killer. You know, I'm scaring my Lyft driver. Or the funniest thing that ever happened was we're doing a training just before the pandemic hits. I'm in the back of the room. My son is in the front teaching. None of the uh, attendees can see me. I'm a little, I'm out of gas. I'm deciding to start giving my hit, myself some hits of dopamine. I'm sitting back there forcing a smile on my face you know, looking like the Joker in the Batman movies. Like I look like a psychopath back there making a smile on my face. Now, I forget the one person that could see me is my son <laughs> who's teaching. And he thinks I'm reacting to him. And after I, you know, I about the third or fourth Joker smile on my face, he finally goes, I can't take it anymore. What are you doing back there? What's wrong with you? <laughs> he turns around and looks at me, and I go, oh, 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 I'm just, you know, I'm just giving myself hits of dopamine. I'm sorry. <laughs> That's awesome. And he comes up to me at the break. He goes, like, I can still see you. You drive me crazy. <laughs> That's hilarious. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm a psychopath. I'm sorry. And, and in real world, too, and actually Cialdini, to redeem him a little bit, I don't know if you've read uh, Influence by Cialdini. Everybody that's studied human interaction has to read Influence. Phenom- yes. Phenomenal book. There's a part, uh, I think one of his is mirroring, where he talks about um, you know, your comedy sitcoms, and they use that fake laughter you know, at the corny jokes. Yeah. Because it's specifically, they use it specifically because it triggers viewers at home to think, oh, this is funny, and I'll laugh, too. So there, there's other... Um, you know, applications outside of just negotiating that we're all probably actually really familiar with. Yeah, there you go. I mean, and that's why there's certain things. Laughter is contagious. Calm is contagious. Okay, yeah. And then what does it do to our ability to think? Because, you know, and I'll circle back around on this one more time, just because you're 31% smarter in a positive frame of mind. The flip side is you're at least 31% dumber in a negative frame of mind. You gotta wrap your mind around the implications for that, and in and in human interaction, it's not emotions that are bad for us; it's negative emotions. And when you can make that distinction, you can now impact your ability to perform, and also make better deals. If somebody that you're dealing with is in a negative frame of mind, or you are. You're both dumber. <laughs> what does that do to your ability to optimize a deal? You've got to deal with that. I think a lot of what we've talked about today, um, you know, whether it's leading into empathy, uh, the tone, all of this is relevant in person as well as like in this new world that where we are, you know, yeah. we're using Zoom more, we're on the phone more. Yeah. We have to negotiate through those mediums now. Uh, what may be different over a virtual negotiation than an in-person one that we should be mindful of these days? Dial in more to tone of voice. Um. For 70% of the planet, that's harder for. About 60% of us, our primary sense, the information our brain takes 
uh, data from first is our, our vision. About 30% is our hearing, about 10% roughly, about 10% of us are feel. So if your principal source of data for assessment and reaction of other people is um, vision, you feel awkward on Zoom because you're aware that a significant portion of the body language is gone. If you're the 10% that's in feel, I very much believe there's something to the feel of being in person. You know, quantum physics is now beginning to define that our, our, our energy fields from our body, you know, our heart energy extend probably at least 10 feet away. And there's hard science now that's backing that up. That means we can feel each other when we're in person. If you're the 10% that's kinesthetic, that's been cut off from you and it's throwing you off. Even smell, if you're kinesthetic, if you can smell, you pick up on that. That's data that you've lost. So, but the, the verbal data, the, the tone of voice data is just still there. Now I'm, I'm in, I'm in the 30% that's auditory. My first sense is my hearing. It's not, again, your first sense is not your sharpest sense. It's just where your brain is taking data from first. So it's easier for me to make the transition to tone of voice because I'm inclined in that direction to start with. But again, there's no such thing as good or bad. There's trained and untrained. If you start dialing into tone of voice, it's a ridiculously rich source of assessment data that's still there. And it gives you the opportunity to add to your skills on Zoom. Start dialing into tone of voice. The other trick, the other fun thing is though, that nobody's picking up on. The, if there's more than one person on your team or on their team that's on Zoom, anybody who's off target for the communication, their body language is going to be insanely unguarded. So watch the other people that you're not talking to they will almost have epileptic fits of body language. That is like we were on one Zoom call. My son said to me, "Did you, uh, it wasn't Bobby's not the guy's name, but he said, did you see Bobby when you asked that question? I thought Bobby was going to throw up. The unguarded body language of the people off target is hysterical. On my team, our coach, Derek, when he's off target, I love telling really bad, we call them dad jokes. Oh, yeah. Derek will almost fall out of his seat if I tell a really bad dad joke. And I'll, you know, I'm, I might be talking to, uh, to Devin and telling Devin a bad joke, but I want to watch Derek fall out of his chair when how bad it is. <laughs> in so. You can have a lot of fun with that. Tell, you know, tell really bad jokes on Zoom calls and watch who falls out of their chair, and that, that's who you want to watch. <laughs> okay, so I'm a big fan of dad jokes. Uh, everyone on my team knows it. Chris, what's your go-to dad joke? I got to know. Oh, man. All right, so, uh, well, because of the pandemic, I'm only telling inside jokes. <laughs> I'll take that one. I, and I'm probably going to steal that as well, but I'll credit you. <laughs> Give attribution three times and then you can make it your own. I said, uh, I'll, I'll tell the world Denzel taught me. <laughs> uh, l- 
last question before we get into the wrap up. Now, you know, it sounds like, you know, being in a positive mind frame is important. Seeing is important. Tone is very important. Oftentimes in sales, we run into hard-nosed negotiators, people who lowball us or are really aggressive in their communication style. What advice can you give us to overcome those scenarios and those tough negotiators? Yeah, that's, you know what, that's a timely question because I'm working on a blog post for our uh, negotiation newsletter, The Edge, like as we speak. And so you guys will get a preview of this post. It won't, it won't be out for a couple weeks, but here's a preview. All right, so um, they need to feel they got the best deal. They don't need to get the best deal. They need to feel they got the best deal. This is the same way that when we dealt with kidnappers, you know, the ambassador is saying when they're going to release a hostage. And I'll say when the kidnappers feel like they got the best deal. Now think about how stupid that is. We're talking about a kidnapper's feelings. How does a kidnapper feel about the deal? Did it feel, Mr. Kidnapper, does this feel right for you? (laughs) But that's what it really is. And so I'm like, all right, all I got to do is make them feel like they worked really hard. How do I make them feel it sooner? It'll be over quicker. So, you know, what and how questions exhaust the other side. You get good with what and how questions. How am I supposed to do that? For the other side to even think about that as a way of saying no. I mean, it wears them down. You got to wear, you're wearing them down. Now, the tough, hard-nosed bargainers, here's the nuts thing. They've actually been trained to continue to pound you until you've said no and meant it emotionally two times they found that in order to know that they push you to your max you know they view it as squealing you got to squeal twice all right squeal twice or make them feel no twice sooner and one one of the things that i that i put in a blog post is instead of you know, that you squealing is their gauge of feeling a solid no. So in a deferential way, in a polite way, say no in a way that they feel it. But you got to say no. And there's some people out there that they just feel horrible because they feel that no is rejection, you know, no is, no is failure. I mean, they're scared of no. And that's how, that's how they gauge it. You know, they're, they're going to make you say no. So say it and mean it. it. It sounds like they make you call uncle twice before showing any mercy. There you go. That's a great analogy. So call uncle. And then you, then you make a better deal. Because they, they got to go back to their boss. The bo- they, their boss is going to check to see whether or not they pounded you. I mean, the procurement, the contracts, people, the amount of pressure that they are under most people just don't really appreciate because they tend to be such difficult people to deal with. People are scared to death of procurement, but the, the pressures that procurement are under, no, no wonder it, it distorts them into such hard nosed negotiators because they're under a massive amount of pressure and, and the job, like they got to buy everything from paper clips to drones. And how are you going to know what you're doing? You know, I could be an expert on paper clips. I could be an expert on drones, but not both. But that's what they're expected to be. So it's a tough job. That's a good way of putting it. So, Chris, we ask all of our guests one question to wrap up every episode. So we're going to ask you the same. 
And that is, how would you describe sales in one word? Well, challenging is the first word that that comes to mind. Very true. Um, why, know, why, uh, why do you say, why do you say challenging? Well, most people aren't trained properly for it. Uh, there's there's a massive amount of really bad training out there, and even bad trainer training is superior to no training. So you're a salesperson, you can't close any deals. And then you come across some training, which might happen to have a really low close rate, but you go from zero to 2%. And you're like, ah, success. And then you get addicted to success. Like the Wolf of Wall Street, Jordan Belfort, teaches a straight line method. And he talks about a 2% success rate. And he's saying, like, I realize this is really low, but over the course of a year, if you talk to enough people, you make a million dollars. And people are like, all right, wow. But then they become addicted to success, and anything that that's, is different than that, then they're like, oh, that's not how I make deals. And it's, you know, it's one of the reasons Jim Collins wrote that book, Good to Great. You feel like you're good. You get comfortable there. And becoming great takes you out of the comfort zone and you don't like it. And that was really the point that Collins is trying to make. Like you got to, you got to get massively uncomfortable to get better. And most people just don't want to do that. I I totally agree with you. And and I'll have to add that the negotiation aspect of sales is also what makes it challenging and hard. And it's another one of those skills that you need to put in that time Mm -hmm. and, and practice and, train yourself on to level up your game. Yeah. And, and, and that's why one of the cool things, like I didn't really ever seen never split the difference is this massive sales book. And it probably has hit hardest with salespeople and been most utilized and made more differences in more salespeople's lives than, than we ever expected it would. Yeah. I read it in uh, two, I actually listened to the audio book in 2018 uh, Q4, which is, you know, end of year for salespeople. I was in, I was in sales before my current role and, uh, I was getting my, uh, forgive me, Sheena, I was getting my ass handed to me, uh, by one of these, one of these three deals I was working and I was listening to your book and you broke down the, I believe it was like three types of personas, uh, of yeah. types of negotiators. And I had, it was just perfect because I had each one of these three people was one of these types. Like one was the hard nose, one was analytical, one was yeah. the nice guy. Uh, yeah. So I was able to use the book and uh, I'm going to toot my own horn a little bit. All three closed, all three closed. So I, 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 I give you some of that credit, uh, Chris, uh, for, for, for helping me with that. So shameless plug. If, if you haven't read the book, it is uh, extremely helpful and immediately applicable to, to salespeople. Nice, man. Well, you're coachable. I mean, that's one of the things I was talking about earlier. If you're coachable, you could do it. So nice work. I appreciate that. Well, Chris, we'll wrap up here uh, again. Big thank you for joining us. Thanks for sharing your expertise. And uh, hopefully we'll uh, hear from that second book sooner than later. Yeah, and I'd love to remind everybody how they can keep up on everything. Please do. I mean, uh, subscribe to the newsletter, The Edge. Uh, It's complimentary, but even more valuable and complimentary, it's concise. Concise, actionable advice. Like I get the daily 10-point briefing from the Wall Street Journal. That that baby wears me out. I mean, I got to go take a nap after every day. (laughs) So we, we send you one article. It's concise and actionable. It comes out on Tuesday mornings. Easiest way to sign up is a text-to-sign-up function. Text 
black swan method, three words, spaces between the words. It's not cap sensitive. Send that message to 33777. That's 33777. If you you execute that properly, the message you get back, ask for your email address. The newsletter is a gateway to everything. It's the gateway to everything we have, and I highly recommend it. A lot of people get a long way with just the book and the newsletter alone. That's terrific, and we can put it in the show notes as well to make it easy for folks. Thank you. Thank you. Well, thanks again, Chris. It was it was great to have you. I'm sure this is going to be one of those episodes that folks come back to and re-listen to refresh on some of the topics that we talked about today. So uh, it was great to have this conversation with you. I enjoyed the conversation. You guys were a lot of fun. Thank you very much. Have a good day. Every week, we like to bring you a micro action, something you can think about or put into play. What can you do right now to start strengthening your own EQ? One way is to take a step back, get a sense of your current EQ, and assess your willingness to adapt and grow. Here are a few questions you can ask yourself. First off, am I actually coachable? Am I open to receiving the feedback about my communication and empathy skills? Next, what are my real motives as a seller? Do I see sales as aligning with customers' needs and desires, or is it just about convincing people to buy? And last, and probably the hardest, is am I willing to do the work? Practicing empathy in daily conversation so that I'm prepared to act empathetically during emotionally challenging, high-stakes situations. Did you like today's episode? Subscribe now so next week's episode will be waiting for you on Monday. And if you really like the podcast, please leave a review. Five-star reviews go a long way to help get the word out there. And if you're not ready to give a five, check out another episode and see if we've won you over by then. And if you have any feedback or you want us to interview one of your favorite revenue leaders, just email us at reveal at gong.io.